The joy that's ours on a Sunday morning such as this continues to be great. Indeed, we have been so honored and blessed to be able to assemble and to gather in this way. And though it's been mentioned already, let me also continue to bring to our attention that the third Sunday singing this afternoon at the two o'clock hour. Please make every plan and schedule things in such a way we can be here for that time. It is a great compelling time in which we can sing with such enthusiasm and energy as we not only encourage ourselves, but all of those that might be our visitors. And more than anything else, we can let it be known unto God how much we love Him and use the fruit of our lips, Hebrews 13, 15, in order to describe that element of praise. It is true as we come to the lesson this morning, you may have noticed I've chosen this title, From Defiance to Devotion. We, of course, could begin by noting a few interesting references to transformations in the Bible. The word transform is such a powerful word. It, of course, describes a wholesale change in mindset and attitude, a wholesale change, you see, in one's outlook. The Bible mentions many transformations, and I have just very briefly highlighted some because they're not the primary thrust of our message. But isn't it true in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, all of us are admonished to never, ever be such that we're conformed to this world. But we must be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And yet the Bible so often lists for us clear-cut examples of those who experience transformation. What about the crippled man of John 5? He went from a state of helplessness to hopefulness as the Lord healed him. Changed the entirety, no doubt, of what his future life would be. What about furthermore in that second possibility, Peter himself? In that episode of him walking on the water, he went from terrified to trusting. When he began to sink, we can all imagine the terror that must have gripped him and then to be saved by the outstretched hand of the Master. He went from that initial state of being terrified to one of trusting. What about Zacchaeus in Luke 19? There was a man who went from selfishness to, to selflessness. Maybe finally, I could I invite you to notice Peter himself. Under the banner of John 21, he went from a man defeated. He had just denied the Lord not many days previous. Defeated, but then he went to determined. All of that highlights the kind of change that Jesus can make possible for you and me. What was the case in life need not continue to be the case if it's, you see, a life as it not ought to be. Maybe that could speak volumes to you and to me today. But let's reserve this one. What about the transformation from defiant to devoted? Now the rest of the lesson will be focused upon that particular transformation. So why don't we in fact describe the setting first of the one who underwent this transformation. And when we do that then we'll draw some lessons of benefit to you and me. It will all take us to the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. It is from that chapter that we had a reading a moment ago of verse number 6, but to place the setting somewhat more thoroughly and fully in its place. Why don't we first give a definition for that word defiant, and then let's turn our attention to the text. The word defiant, as you can, can tell, is an adjective that certainly could be descriptive of many people, maybe even you and me. But what does it mean? 
It means to have a disposition to resist. A disposition to be unwilling, you see, to, to make changes or to say that differently. A willingness to fight or to contend. So if one fights against what's good, you're defiant. If one opposes what is godly and noble, you are being defiant. And any of us in that position would thus be properly described by a word like that one. Obviously, there can be those who are defiant to authority. There can be those who are defiant to, say, good habits in some way in life. There may be those defiant to good ideas or to other kinds of changes. I think we get the idea of this defiance. To say the very least, defiance can in many times show itself as a stubborn unwillingness to yield to the way that's better. Now maybe again, we've all been at some point in life in that very position. We just didn't want to change. We were somewhat pleased or at least satisfied with how things are. And no matter how others who loved us spoke to us and encouraged us, we just weren't going to change. Sometimes parents have that challenge, don't we? Our children don't quite see things the way that we do, and yet there may be times when they finally do. But sometimes there can be moments of challenge. But this issue in defiance is one the Bible speaks of on many occasions. Let's talk about Saul, shall we? As you and I arrive at the opening verses of Acts chapter 9, we encounter a man known as Saul, and he was a devout Jew. And that word devout certainly speaks volumes. He was committed to the Jewish way of life. Acts 22.3 will tell us he was born in Tarsus, one of the most notable educated Jewish cities in the world. In fact, alongside Damascus, it's the most continuously inhabited city on earth. Tarsus is well known now, and it was well known then. In fact, there was a school in Tarsus. It ranked right up there with the schools in Alexandria and Athens. Paul was educated in Tarsus. The man we call Paul grew up there. That was his place. It was his hometown. And you and I may well note that not only is that true, he was educated at the feet of arguably one of the most well-known and highly respected rabbis that have ever lived, a man named Gamaliel. We learn all of that from the New Testament presentation of the history and the life of the man we call Saul. In fact, so committed was he to the Jewish way of life, he held the garments of those who stoned Stephen to death in Acts 7, verses 57 and following. Saul was the one, in essence, who gave his voice and who lent his approval to what was taking place. He was so opposed to what Jesus stood for and to the kind of gospel message that Jesus brought. That's not all. Paul himself would say in Galatians 1.14 that he excelled above many who were his equals. There were a lot of devout Jewish people. Paul said, I outachieved them all. Now, as he did all of that, can't you and I begin to see here was a man defiant. This man we call Jesus, Paul considered him an imposter. Paul considered him not the Messiah. And he gave the fullness of his energy, the fullness, you see, of his opposition to all that would go against what Jesus stood for. In Acts 9, verse number 1, we learn that he breathed out threatenings and slaughter toward Christians. 
If Paul was in the neighborhood, don't you know that back in that time of his life, he'd have been here today actively opposing what you and I are now doing. He wouldn't have just voiced opposition. He would have done something by having the authorities here to arrest us, by actively doing what he could to demolish devotion to Jesus Christ. And yet, through it all, Paul lived in all good conscience at that time in his life. He didn't perceive anything wrong about what he was doing. Doesn't that remind us, among other things, of this truth? We can have a good conscience about something and be completely wrong about it. It may be due to our background and due to the way in which our family has always looked at things. That doesn't make it right. I could be in all good conscience and be dead wrong about it. The Bible tells us Saul was. You and I shouldn't think we are exempt from that kind of thinking. And so at the top of this slide, let's go even further. Saul, while at that time in his life, gave his voice against Christians. He would later say that in Acts 20.16. I wonder how many Christians met their death because Paul had something to do with it. Don't you know that plagued him later in life after he became a Christian? To know that he had a hand in putting to death these who were his former brothers and sisters in Christ? That must have brought him great mental anguish in many ways. And so as we arrive at Acts chapter 9, he went to the high priest and obtained letters, official documents, permitting him to arrest Christians in the city of Damascus. And so it was, that as that chapter began, there's the setting. Now, interestingly, as readily proceeds, it was not a trivial journey to travel from Jerusalem to Damascus. Now, this day and time, it would be terrible. They're in different countries who don't get along. Getting a passport to cross from Israel into this place where Damascus is, Syria, today it would be a nightmare. Even then, though, geographically it wasn't simple. 136 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus. And on those old roadways that were the case back then, you know that wasn't a trivial journey. And yet, here was a man so passionate about opposing Jesus and so passionate about opposing Christianity, he'd make that journey and he would take care of those Christians there in whatever way he had access to do it. He would arrest them. As this chapter proceeds, though, something amazing happened just outside Damascus. He was close. He was almost there. And something amazing happened. A bright light shone about him. And a conversation took place between him and the author of that light. Could I direct your attention to verse 4? The bright light has shone. It says, He, that Saul, fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. The author of that light was none other than Jesus the Messiah, the one who, again, he had so strongly opposed. And in that conversation, the first words that Jesus stated were he identified him by name. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now that would shake one up, wouldn't it? The author of this light knew his name. 
And the author of this light knew what he was doing in life. And the author of this light knew the basic character of who he was and what he stood for. The author of this light, you see, knew it seems everything about him. As you and I close that slide, that question, we're told, was authored, at least presented in the Hebrew language, and though those that were Paul's companions heard it, they didn't understand it. As Paul responded to this, he said in verse 6, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Jesus gave some further instructions to him. He said, go into the city, into Damascus, and it'll be told thee what thou must do. Not what you might do, should do, could do, or might do. He said what you must do. And you and I notice rather amazingly that these instructions were provided directly. As you and I close that slide, that light had blinded Saul. And here now this man who found this dramatic event that happened to him, he couldn't see. I think each of us recognize what fear would grip us if you suddenly were unable to see. We depend on our eyesight. We're thankful to God for it. This man was blinded. For three days he'd stay that way. Can you imagine being without your sight? I'm sure it would begin to wonder, will I ever see again? Will my sight ever return? And for three days he was in this position. The one whom he had spoken to was the very one whom he'd been persecuting. This man who had been defiant became devoted. Devoted to the one who formerly he had persecuted. The one who formerly he had opposed. He now would give his life in defense of him. That kind of transformation is fascinating, isn't it? Why don't we then give some more details to this transformation of defiant to devoted. And maybe you and I could be admonished and encouraged and as we do all that, it begins like this. Lesson one, I've placed in bold for your consideration. That Lord who seemingly knew so much, I've called it the Lord's knowledge. In that state of defiance, you and I can well appreciate that it's easy to depend on yourself. I don't need God. Maybe even one has an idea of what the Bible has to say, and yet one supposes that he or she is above that, or at least can find some way around it. I hope that we're wiser than that. The Bible is not filled with loopholes. God said what He meant, and He meant what He said. It would be laughable to think that the Almighty, infinite God of heaven couldn't tell us what He wanted. You and I can use language and convey to someone else exactly what we want, and we can anticipate and demand that they fulfill that. We as parents do it all the time. We give instructions to our children. We expect that not only do they understand it, but that they will comply with it, and if not, there will be punishment. Is God any different? He said what He meant, and He meant what He said. You and I thus call into question His greatness if we think otherwise. You may notice on that slide, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He knew what Saul had been doing. He knew what these previous years and perhaps even decades of his life had been given to. Did you note something, though, that closed? 
Verse number five, we often give little emphasis to it, but maybe it's worth an observation. It says, it is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. That word pricks in Greek is the word goads. Now, you and I in this part of the world are very familiar with what a goad is used for. You have some cattle and you want to direct them into a pen or direct them to some location. You use a stick, a pointed stick, to move them the way you want them to go. That's what Jesus said to Paul. Hard for you to kick against the goads. In the same way, it's difficult for a cow or some other animal to oppose those goads. Paul, it seems, at this point in his life, was facing some pricks. I wonder if it was the teaching of Gamaliel, the very one who was his teacher. Because in Acts 5, we learn that Gamaliel already had a mindset to honor and appreciate what the Lord stood for. Maybe Paul already was beginning to have some seeds of doubt about this Jewish way of life and the opposition that he had expressed toward Jesus. If so, maybe that turmoil that was rolling in his mind, now Jesus activates it like this. Those pricks you've been feeling, those goads that have been disturbing your thinking, I want you to know the real, I'm here and I'm telling you. Your persecution of me and I am the Lord. Today, when you and I give thought to hard to kick against the pricks, maybe there are things in your life or mine. Maybe a wise person, a parent, a good friend or otherwise has shared with us some things we need to change. Maybe we've been resistant. We've been defiant. We have been opposed to that because we just don't want to change. And yet we know that would be for the best. We know it would be for the better. May I suggest, look at what Saul did. You know, when that bright light shone around him and the light identified that it was the Lord speaking to him, Saul didn't say, I can't stand you. And I'm going to oppose you to the day I die. That's not what he said. He said, may I ask you to note the words again in verse 6? Lord, what will you have me to do? He addressed him as Lord. He surely wouldn't have said that before. What a transformation was beginning to take place. As you and I close that slide, isn't it fascinating? The Lord's knowledge to you and me is still complete. He knows what we think about. He knows the kind of person we are. And He knows the nature of how much better things could be for us if we would just let Him into our life and let Him direct all the things that go along with it. Jesus knew all about Saul's life. He knew all about the kind of individual he had been and could be. And now, as you and I close that slide, what a great lesson or encouragement that is for you and for me. It's never possible to hide from God. What a futile effort that would be. For the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, Proverbs 15, 3. The Hebrew writer would put it like this in Hebrews 4, 13 that our great Savior, Jesus the Christ, is such that all things are naked and open under the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Surely in all that light, lesson number two would be an important one as well. How vital, absolutely critical it is to follow the things that Saul just did. Verse 6, Lord, what will you have me to do.
Now, whatever it is that the Lord then would say, Saul was going to do it. It doesn't matter what you tell me, how much different and how much change in life is going to be required, how much distinction to what I formerly have done and have known, that is what I am now willing and anxious to do. Does that characterize you and me? You know, it's awful easy to be defiant, to just refuse to change, even when the wisdom of the moment and the good teaching of the Word of God makes it evident. Saul was not that way. What will you have me to do? Kind of reminiscent of others in the Bible who felt similarly, such as Isaiah 6, verse 8, Lord, send me. You know, when it came to the will of the Lord as expressed in that place, Isaiah was quick to say, I'm ready, send me. In 1 Samuel 3, verse number 9, you recall the the young lad, Samuel? Eli, you can see, was the, the aged priest at the time. And yet the interesting conversation took place. You may recall that Samuel was told these words by Eli, and he was to say them, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. Whatever the God of heaven said, Samuel was going to be anxious and willing to do it. May that characterize you and me. Lord, what will you have me to do? Saul didn't try to rationalize his former way of life, did he? In our day-to-day, I suspect some would say, well, my dad and mom did it this way. My grandparents live like this. I believe I'm content this way. No words like that were spoken by Saul. Whatever you need me to do, whatever you command me to do, Lord, I'm ready to do it. Isn't that impressive? To relinquish life, to relinquish the dedication in that complete way is so impressive. You and I know what a great servant of the Lord Saul became. For right now, as you journey forward on that slide, you may notice that, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? We know how that story ended. We know what was going to transpire. I hope you and I would be immediately impressed. Here was a man in a position of penitence. He had just spoken with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he was in the midst of that conversation. Some might well wonder, well, why not didn't Jesus just tell him then what he needed to do? There's much consideration considering that, isn't there? And somewhat later the lesson, we'll give it some thought ourselves. But for right now, isn't it amazing the kind of transformation that was occurring? This next slide will then invite us to note the following. You and I well know that Saul would give up everything. He gave up his prestige, his notoriety in the Jewish community. He gave up his defense of all those things, Judaistic in character. Later he would say in Philippians 3, 7, Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. I've suffered the loss of all things that would count them but dung that I may win Christ. Paul was happy to give it all up if he could gain Christ. That kind of motivation in life and that kind of devotion to Him, what a change had been wrought. For that reason, on the top of that slide, it's tempting, isn't it, for any of us to claim allegiance to Jesus, but really to make no changes, to merely give mouth service to our allegiance and devotion to the Lord. But we know that's not going to work. 
In Luke chapter 6, Jesus at one point pointed out in verse number 46, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? If we don't do what He says, He's not our Lord despite what we may say. And yet in the midst of all of that, we find one who would give his life in full devotion, namely Saul, to the one that had now spoken to him on this road to Damascus. Choose you this day whom you will serve, to borrow the words of Joshua 24:15. To echo the sentiment of Matthew 6:24, no man can serve two masters. You'll hate the one, cling to the other, hold to the one, despise the other. You can't serve God in mammon. In Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. All of that allows us the third and final lesson of our time together today. So far as we have looked at that motion from defiance to devotion, we now bring our statement to this one. This change, this requirement to walk by faith, I pointed out a moment ago, and you and I may have often reflected upon it. Go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. May we all take note, Saul was not saved on the road to Damascus. Sometimes there are those that make that statement. His conversation in that, the Lord said, you go to the city and it'll be told what you must do. In a state of blindedness, he went to that city and fasted for three days. As we've often noted, think about the mental agitation, the uncertainty that must have clouded his mind, at least in that regard. All his life he had been a strong and devout Jew, and now he found out he was wrong. He found out he was wrong. All those times, those days, those months, those years of pursuing Judaism, thinking Jesus was a fake, and now he knew he'd been wrong. I believe we can all understand how mentally troubled you'd be for that period of time. He knew the Lord was real, but now he was waiting for this instruction from the Lord because the Lord said, you do there what's told you. And you and I remember that God equipped a man named Ananias to come to Saul and to tell him what he needed to know and encourage him to do it. Ananias was first a bit hesitant because he knew what the reputation of Saul was. But yet the God of heaven assured him, this man is a chosen vessel to me. He is going to be a light to the Gentiles for me. And so Ananias went to him, talked to him, preached to him. And in Acts twenty two sixteen, this is what Paul said that Ananias told him. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. You need to obey the gospel, Saul, and you need to do it now. No waiting. Arise now and do it. Now, I would suggest that that reminds any of us, you and I may already be Christians, but if there are things amiss in our life, fix it now. Time is too uncertain. Eternity will be on us before we know it. It's too late to fix it then. Today's the day of salvation. We learn all of that as we reflect upon Saul. This man who had been so defiant had now become so devoted. Are you and I devoted to the Lord? 
Have we moved from defiance to devotion? If you have, then may that kind of life characterize you fully for the remainder of your days. But if you and I are holding out in defiance, Saul would be quick if he could stand before us directly in person. Don't you know how strongly he would urge us, give up that defiance. It's not going to lead you to anywhere good. It's going to lead you to a a place of doom, a place of separation, a place of darkness, a place of misery and anguish, and it'll lead you away from the love of the God of heaven. Today, this defiance that we've seen in Saul that gave way to devotion, how encouraging that it tell us what a change can be wrought. You'll notice on that slide, we have thus discussed today this change from the defiance of Saul to the devotion of Paul. That man's name was going to be changed in Acts 13, and he was no longer called Saul. He was called Paul, one of the greatest Christians to ever walk the planet. He gave his life in open defiance to the things of Christ from this day forward. In 1 Corinthians 9, 16, he would himself say, Woe is it to me if I preach not the gospel. In Romans 1, 14 to 16, he said, I'm ready to preach it. I'm debtor to preach it. I'm not ashamed to preach it. The message he had once opposed, he now preached to the day of his death. Maybe may that commitment be ours. If we could help anybody in this audience today, in your obedience to the gospel, we'd love to do that. And the same words that Ananias told Saul are the same words we need to hear. If you need to become a Christian, believe Jesus with all your heart to be the one that spoke to Saul on that road to Damascus and the one that died on the cross for you and me. Believe in Him. Trust Him. Repent of your sins because He says to do it. Confess His name in the hearing of others and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Today, if we could assist in that way, what a delightful and joyous day it'd be. But if you are a person who, as a child of God, once faithful but not now, you've allowed thoughts and behaviors and conducts and activities to bring you aside from the truth that you once had known, and your life is not the wholesome, godly life that Jesus would want it to be, you can make it right. You can allow Jesus to work again in you. You need to make confession of those things and repent of them. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. And if you'll do that, the Lord promises He'll forgive you. And we'll be honored to approach God in prayer. Today, if that's the need of your heart and life, don't delay. Today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. If we can help, won't you come while we stand and sing?